know, the whole point of today is we've got some great people willing to, to share their time with us and all, all, all in the hope of, of really raising more money for the American Red Cross and their disaster relief. Uh, so keep those coming in. Thank you so much for doing that. I am joined this morning. We've got uh, some of our, our Stormfront Freaks co-hosts first. This is okay. amazing. I love right. everyone here in the mission. We, we've also got uh, we've got our, our co-creator, co-host, co-producer, and my brother, uh, Mark M.J. Johnson, joining us this morning. Thanks, M.J. Yeah, good morning, everybody. Good to be here. This is a lot of fun. It's a good, uh, and great, then, great and then Brady Harris. Uh, Brady Harris is one of our co-hosts as well. Uh, Brady's joining us from Columbus. Brady, good morning. Hey, Phil. I don't have any exotic rugs behind me like MJ does, but uh, I'm working on it. I'm working. That's on good. It. And and we're we're still joined by uh, Weather Brains Bill Murray. We got yeah. Carly Sisson with us, but we want to jump to our our first guest here, uh, Mike Boylan, creator of Mike's Weather Page. He's also a storm chaser. Um, Mike, thanks for joining us. I know you've had. You got some softball or something like that going on today. Is this you or or one of your kids? Oh, it's my it's my kids. Um, it's my second love. I don't know what I love more is watching her play or chasing a good storm. But uh, today I get to do both. Or this week I did the, the big storms in Miami a couple of days ago, and here I am watching her play. So it's a perfect week and doing your all's telethon. So there we go. <laughs> well, we we definitely appreciate you joining us. So so thanks for for the time on that. And I'm I'm going to tell all of our co-hosts what we do on Stormfront Freaks is if you've got a question, you just kind of jump in and, and whoever's the loudest uh, tends to get their question in first. But Mike, I want to first get get a little feedback from you on this year's tropical season. Uh, what was your what was your take on this year? What what were your thoughts on it? Um, you know, I, I think beginning of the year, I, I stress the importance of, you know, it only takes one. Sometimes we get these seasons with a lot of names. You know, we almost had Vince today. Uh, so, you know, I think it, it comes down to all that preseason hype of, of a busy season versus a slow season. And sometimes we only get one or two land falling systems. And that's the one thing that I, I think it stands out is, you know, everybody thinks it's a dead season when it, they're not affected. And we really only had Idalia. Um, we still had, a, you know, third active season ever, but we really only had one memorable storm. So uh, it just kind of shows you that uh it, tropics are tricky um you know we saw over in uh, mexico with acapulco there what could happen overnight so uh the, you know always you know you just can't turn your back on on the tropics that's for sure i want to actually mike expand on phil's question so he talked about the tropical season this year uh what about like the year as a whole when it comes to chasing storms was there anything that stood out for you and um kind of break down some of your biggest chases uh, yeah, well, Idalia from, you know, we were, we, we went to Idalia and that was a, a, a different storm for us up here because we had surge, uh, all the way, basically where Ian made landfall, some places down in Fort Myers area had more surge than they did with Ian. And, uh, it was a storm that was a hundred miles off the coast. So I, I think the biggest impact for me was, was the non-direct landfall of, of a storm in the whole West coast of Florida experience flooding and every town where I live had FEMA set up and we're talking you know Palm Harbor Clearwater Tarpon Springs the sponge docks places that have never flooded uh had water inland I mean I went to Crystal River which was way away from the, the landfall and they had water a mile from the coast um and there was locals walking around they look like zombies because they've never seen it locals have never saw water come inland that far uh so those those are things that I take away um, the, the non landfall effects in, you know, Valdosta, uh, Georgia, like this storm was so strong. There was, there was pine trees everywhere. Interstate 10 was closed. So it, again, it, you know, it reinstates how important to, to discuss inland effects and not where the storm hits. Cause you know, there was people that again, up in Georgia that, that thought it was only going to be a Florida event and they're looking around and they got trees down everywhere. So that, that was my most memorable thing I think was just how effective how many people were affected from a storm that was hundred miles off the coast here on the West coast. And we had record surge and it, it was a wake up call for Tampa where I live that they had flooding that they've never seen in Tampa Bay. Again, from a storm with the sun was out, you know, we were getting mm -hmm. flooded. So it, it's a, it's a, yeah, surge is a real deal. And I, I think that's, that was, you know, the big thing for me is what, what surge can really do. Yeah. And Mike, and that's a really interesting point, right? Because you're right that, you know, there was, there was storm surge with 
with sunshine out, right? That's the, like, how do you, yep. commu- do you think the public, <laughs> like, do you think people that you were seeing were ready for that? Like, did totally. they expect the amount of flooding or no? No, totally. No, 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 no. Because uh, I, you know, I had people, locals kind of calling me out because um, I saw, we had a storm called Ada a couple years ago in 2020 and we had hundreds of homes flooded in Pinellas. Same situation. It was a tropical storm that was only 60 miles off our coast. Everything lined up. We had, you know, the, the new moon, um, you know, tide cycles. And what I've learned from these storms, something that I didn't really learn until Idalia, especially, is when you have a, a, a persistent southwest wind here during a high tide, it drives all that water in. But when that wind stays, that low tide never gets a chance to escape. So then when the second high tide came in, that's when we had our surge, you know, several hours after Idalia was gone. That's when midday the next day we had these high surge values. Yeah. Um, Cedar Key, for example, I, I tried to go out there, you know, that's where Cantori was camped out. Uh, it was closed. It was still underwater. The bridge, you know, the, the little causeway was underwater from the secondary surge um, wow. from high tides. So that's something that I think is fascinates me is when the low tide never gets a chance to escape. And then the next tide comes in with those winds and, we, you know, we get that um, additional surge that, you know, nobody really expected. Yeah, because I'm I'm pretty sure too it was the historic high tide, right? It was it was one oh, yeah. of you know it, it, it the the actual surge combined with the fact that this was the the highest tide of the year was was just a recipe for disaster. And I I can't even imagine having to try and communicate to that. Hey, we're not going to get hit with the hurricane, but you're right. still going to have storm surge. Like the public doesn't understand storm surge as it is. You know, like yeah. how do you explain? Hey, the the center of this thing is going to be a hundred <laughs> miles off our coast. But we're totally. still going to get storm surge flooding and we're still going to have flooding along the coast. Like, you know, yeah. I, I w- if I'm a person that lives there, I'm just going to be like, ah, you know, it's not going to hit me. I'm going to be fine. You know, totally. And, and it goes back to the cone, you know, what the NHC wants to try to figure out a different way to showcase the cone because of what happened with Ian. You know, the eye was right on that edge of the bottom part of the cone. A lot of people focus on that center line and, and the effects that can then then can happen outside that cone. And again, like, I mean, we're talking a storm that was 100 miles away and so many people were flooded. I have not seen uh, final numbers yet, but, you know, Homosassa Springs, Crystal River, all these little cities, you know, Yankee Town and stuff. If, if anybody knows driving on US 19 North, every one of these little towns had serious flooding, you know. And again, like you said, you know, everybody thinks the storm's going north and, uh, so going back to that that statement, you know, uh, here at the softball field, I'm meeting a lot of folks that live in Fort Myers, and that storm still bothers me of how the emotions swung with every six-hour update. And, you know, folks in Tampa, when that thing, for one, uh, one cycle, they had the models go into the panhandle of Florida. So everybody here in Tampa is like, oh, it's going, going west, at, especially Fort Myers. It's like two days before, right? They're like, oh, that's not our storm. And then you know, so the emotions with swings on these shifts, um, yeah. you know, the, um, down at Wink News, um, Matt, they're doing yeah, a Matt cool, DeWitt, yeah, Matt, yeah. yeah, Matt, yeah. Matt um, I, thank you, because I just drew a blank, but he went out on a limb and they've changed their, their graphics and they don't show the center line anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they have a cone with just a cone. And I, you know, that's the biggest thing is, is I think educating people um, and, and the inland effects. That's the number one thing I hear is like, oh, my God, I had no idea everybody's so focused on landfall yeah yeah and mike you bring up a good point about i i like how they took out the center part of that the storm so it's just the cone because i think that's really difficult even you know for everyone to understand okay what do we need to do how do we need to prepare and you know for the public to prepare and do what they need to get all their resources and everything in line. And it it can be one of the most difficult things when it comes to communicating, you know, on TV. Now, Mike, I'd love to know more about a little bit into tornado chasing and what you've (laughs) done there and some big things. Oh God, I'm I'm a rookie. I I joke, you know, um, I I haven't met Reed and I, I just, I, I've tried. You know, um, this last little tornado outbreak that we had here at home, um, I did capture our Oldsmar tornado on a drone. Um, so I'm getting better, you know, and, and we did have damage here. And, and I, I felt good because National Weather Service in Tampa actually used my footage. They didn't even designate this a tornado until I had the footage and we had some homes that were damaged. So I am getting a little better reading, you know, vorticity signals and 
learning what side to be on and don't be on the rain side. I mean, I went to Georgia over the summer and I was on the other side of the tornado and I'm like getting hail and I can't see. And all the smart chasers were on the South side and on the dry side, you know? So, um, and, and tornadoes are frustrating to me because they bounce, you know, they don't stay on the ground very long. And, um, so yeah, that, that we did have a pretty big outbreak here, you know, where I live in Curlew, Curlew and uh, the Curlew Causeway is pretty famous in Dunedin. And we had a significant EF2 damage there. And I was in the parking lot and I just had a bad feeling. So I got the heck out of Dodge and that's exactly where it hit. That was the one with the portalette. I don't know if you saw the videos. There was a portalette that ended up on a streetlight. <laughs> I was right yes. underneath that. So something told me to get out. I didn't, I just, you know, so I'm kind of scared of tornadoes. Um, I, I feel confident with hurricanes. I know the direction of the wind. I know where, you know, I know how to stay away from the surge. Um, so the tornadoes are tricky. And I think, um, you know, I, how many chasers, you know, go a whole season, right? And they just get that one or two, you know, successful chases. But how many, like 100 did they fail at, right? Um, so I, I think tornadoes are tricky, right? They're, we see it with SPC all the time. Sometimes they get, you know, uh, dark green and they get an outbreak and they go, you know, all the way up and they don't get one. So I, I think Mother Nature is smarter than a lot of us. <laughs> this is true. Very true. I mean, all right. Hey, um, before we go to break, uh, Brady, you got one last quick question. Go ahead. Uh, I was going to say, uh, so, so Mike, um, with, with El Nino, the way it is this year, yeah. right? I know Florida, Florida generally gets uh, a little bit more active, a little bit more wet, a little bit more active in the severe weather season. Uh, do you think you'll be chasing this, uh, this, this winter down in Florida in your backyard? I totally believe it. You know, I did, I spent some time researching El Nino, Florida effects, and there's a lot of great graphs been put out from National Weather Service and historically, uh strong el ninos bring the highest flood chances almost like triple the amount of flooding events obviously tornadoes i, I understand with the jet stream that's what we just saw last week or a couple of days ago down in miami uh definitely a product of el nino uh jet stream fueled storms you know in the gulf still 80 degrees so I, I really believe it you know we got another one coming down tuesday they're talking about and I'm, i just looked at the latest models again and so yeah, we're going to be getting that weather, unfortunately. And we did have a tornado outbreak a couple of weeks ago, and um, kind of the same deal. When every time you bring that jet stream in the, into the mix, and we have the Gulf, I, I, I'm believe I, I'm believing yeah. that more than ever that we're going to see an active Florida season. Well, Mike, I, I want to thank you for your time joining us this morning, uh, all to kind of help support the Red Cross and disaster relief, because I know you've seen that a lot yourself. Uh, yes. And I will say, I, I support the Red Cross. They they actually did a hurricane special from our house like five years ago, and it's on the bottom of my page. Everybody wants to see it. So I always give them credit because they, they gave me a little credit back when I was small, and um, I really appreciated that from them. So I always try to throw them a support now and then when I can, too. So. Well, great. Well, Mike, again, thanks for your time. Before we go to break, I want to quick recognize uh, Tasha Kirksey uh, donated $50. So thank you, Tasha. Shannon Bolesky, who's been a guest on our show before, Storm Chaser. Uh, thank you. And Jenny Lassiter, she was our first donor. She's donated again. So uh, she's <laughs> she's one of a couple people I've now seen as a double donator. Uh, let's make it triple, quadruple. Who knows? Uh, we got Got a few more hours to go, but uh, we'll be right back with Bruce Jones from Midland Radio. All right, Mike, thank you, buddy. Hey, Appreciate it. Yeah, I, I didn't know, but thank you so much. Everyone. At an American Red Cross shelter. Cuando se produce un desastre en su zona. The Red Cross may open. Where you can sleep. To get you back on your feet. Never ask. Your citizenship status. Everyone. Todos. At an American Red Cross shelter. To learn more about the Red Cross or to find an open shelter in your area, go to redcross.org or call 1-800-RED-CROSS. All right, back with the Weather Pods Disaster Relief Telethon. Again, thanks for watching and tuning in. Uh, do us a favor and, and tell all your friends, all your weather geeks, uh, message them right now and let them know this is going on because we still got another uh, 10 plus hours uh, to bring you with some great guests. 
And uh, again, our co-host right now, we've got uh, Jen Watson, MJ, Brady Harris, uh, Bill Murray from Weatherbrains. But we are welcoming in uh, one, of, one, of, one of my favorites, uh, Bruce Jones, meteorologist at Midland Radio, one of their top spokespeople. And uh, we love having you on, Bruce. I wanted to bring you on specifically because when we cover disaster relief, that's a big part of what you do and you guys are doing at Midland, which is trying with the with the emergency radios, let people know and warn people in advance uh, of what's coming uh, so that they're not caught in something like that. But thanks for joining us this morning. Hey, I appreciate the opportunity to be here. <clears throat> and for those of you who are watching or listening online, uh, this is a, a fundraiser for the American Red Cross. And I can tell you personally, I've been working with the American Red Cross closely over the last year and a half, maybe two years now, uh, and they have done fantastic work providing weather radios to towns and counties that have been smacked by severe weather, or in the case of Hawaii, by wildfire. In the aftermath of any disaster, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder is a huge issue amongst those who have survived, whether you lost something in it or not. There's a lot of PTSD after these disasters. For the American Red Cross to be able to go around to these communities and hand each homeowner a NOAA weather radio is a tremendous shot in the arm and really helps them with their mental health issues. Because in the aftermath of something destructive in your hometown, whether you fight it or not, you're gonna have a lot of uh, mental issues that come to the surface every time the sky turns dark or the wind starts blowing. You can't control it. It just pops up. But the American Red Cross will go into these communities and hand people a NOAA weather radio. And that radio basically is like an umbrella of safety over that home and that family. So what we're doing here is raising funds for the American Red Cross so that they can continue in these efforts and it, i i give them an a plus in everything that i've seen them do and bruce let's talk a little bit about having that secondary source of confirmation when there's severe weather specifically a tornado because there's been a lot of social scientists that have gone in after disasters and what they found is it takes a lot of people once either they get alert on their phone or they hear the siren, they need that secondary source of confirmation before they actually take shelter. And also another fact is a lot of times we can get severe weather when we're sleeping and you can't rely on the outdoor sirens to wake you up. So why is it so important to have a weather radio and another source of confirmation? Yeah, that's a great question, Jen. I'll tell you, when I was a kid, we lived in Austin, Texas. This was in the 1960s. In Austin, Texas, we did not have central air conditioning in our home. <laughs> central air was for rich people. <laughs> yeah. You kept Texas, your windows open. Wow. In wow. Texas, in Austin, oh Texas, gosh. you kept your windows open in the spring and summer, tornado season, your windows were open. Hmm. So an outdoor siren might have been a little more uh, audible in those days. But those sirens are designed to warn you when you're outdoors and at two o'clock in the morning, unless you're out walking your dog at 2 a.m., you're not supposed to hear that siren inside your home. NOAA Weather Radio was specifically designed to be an indoor tornado siren because we recognize this problem in the 60s, the 70s, and it, it persists today. Now people put so much faith in this cell phone that if your local cell phone tower goes down, you need to understand you may get nothing at all from this phone. And that was the situation in Cookville, Tennessee in 2020, nocturnal tornado, middle of the night, people who went to bed relying on this cell phone to wake them up got nothing because two of the big cell phone towers that serve Cookville were disabled by earlier wind damage. NOAA Weather Radio had the tornado warning 11 minutes in advance. Anyone in Cookville with a uh, weather radio had 11 minutes to take shelter. 19 people died that night. F4 tornado, Cookville, Tennessee, a suburb of Nashville. But you know, after that tornado, our online sales in Tennessee and Kentucky went up 
thousand percent. Wow. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Wow. So they, people get the message after, and I understand that, but we try to get the message out before. And so American Red Cross has done wonderful work in the aftermath of these storms, but it's up to each of us individually to do something uh, preceding these storms. Sure. So, get warnings. so, so Bruce, I've got a question because uh, we, we know all of your, you know, all of the weather radios come with the same technology, right? That that's designed so that you can program your county, your locale uh, into, because that's one of the things people say, I don't want it going off all the time for, you know, <laughs> yeah. it's just like we hear right from, from media, right? They don't want to hear it if it's not in their area. Yeah. Um, what, can you tell us what's the best way for any of us out here in the community if we're working with people, doing a distribution of these radios, doing some things like that, but best way to get people to be able to program that themselves? What, what are the resources available to help them figure out how to program it for their locale? Yeah, that's a great question. We've made it a lot easier. First of all, when you buy a weather radio, look for the public alert designation. Uh, public alert is not advertising. It's the Consumer Technology Association. They set standards for these devices because they want them to be true life-saving devices so get a public alert certified weather radio and that one you can program to go off just for your county and it's easy now because it's all alphabetical when you do set location it says usa or canada you pick usa and then it says what state in the usa you pick your state and then it has the alphabetical list of counties and you find your county and set it in there and, and, and it's done and we have partial county alerting coming here real soon where some counties of the United States will be partitioned into smaller segments. And then you can set your weather radio to only go off for the Northwest or the Southeast corner of your county. And you'll only get the tornado warnings for your specific section of the county. So that's, you're capable of doing that right now, but the emergency managers need to meet with National Weather Service and decide how to subdivide their counties. So Bruce Jones, Bill Murray here, you have a, painting a print of a painting on your wall behind you <laughs> that was in the world book encyclopedia when i was a kid and that 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 print scared me to pieces bruce because that that was just a terrifying situation and it reminded me of too many times you know having to go to the to the to the as we call them in alabama storm pit you know that was uh, the, a, a a very intimidating name but uh, it's good to see you. you got any weather history for us today any anything that happened on this date uh, not off the top of my head, but I'll, let me, let me, let me respond to you about that. I had the same world book encyclopedia, and that was one of my motivations for getting into weather that in the wizard of Oz movie that I saw when mm -hmm. I was five, but that picture right there, if you study it, it, it's just the most dynamic picture. It's called tornado in Kansas or tornado over Kansas. And it's by Curry, C-U-R-R-Y. The originals up in the Grand Rapids, uh, Michigan, as I recall, or Kalamazoo or someplace up there in an art museum. But it's wonderful. It's the it's the family taking shelter uh, as the tornado is coming. And there's some drama in there as uh, the cat is getting ready to bolt out of the little boy's arms. And something something interesting is about to happen as they try to get to the shelter. But the little boy may be running to chase after the cat. But. And, and what they would have given for a weather radio back yeah, then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, basically to wrap up, I'll tell you, National Weather Service has developed this, this network of 1,033 transmitters. They send out a signal 24-7, 365. The weather radio's job is to silently monitor that signal. And so most of the year, a weather radio, it really just sits there silently. It's plugged in, has battery backup, so it'll work in a power failure but it's plugged into the wall and it silently monitors that. And when there's trouble, it goes off, just like a smoke detector does. These should be standard in every home in the United States of America. And for those of you watching, please make a donation to the American Red Cross because they've sent these radios to Mayfield, Kentucky. They just sent a bunch of them down to Louisiana. They've sent them to Tennessee. They've sent them to Maui County and the island of Maui. The, the um, American Red Cross is working with the National Weather Service and county and state emergency managers to get more of these devices out there because we know early warning saves lives. Well, Bruce, thanks so much for uh, taking the time to join us this morning. Uh, definitely appreciate you having it on and, and good to see you. 
good to see you guys and thanks for the opportunity everyone please make a donation yeah so on that note uh, some people we want to highlight michelle uh donated 25 dollars, so thank you michelle carrie monster donated 150 dollars. so carrie monster thank you so much that's going to help a lot of people and uh jessica woodall uh 25 dollars as well thank you very much everybody who's who's helping to give i know we got a bunch of people that have been ripping it up on the chats as well hopefully we'll we'll be talking with you guys as well we got a lot of stuff going on uh but we're gonna head to break here a little bit we're gonna be right back with reed timmer so stay tuned When natural disasters like Hurricane Katrina or Sandy happen, Red Cross emergency response vehicles and volunteers make the news. But rarely shown is the fact that on average, Red Cross workers help a family affected by a home fire or other disaster 180 times a day. The Red Cross is there for nearly 64,000 disasters per year throughout the U.S., helping people like Jean Welsh of Sioux Falls, South Dakota. A smoke alarm installed by the Red Cross saved Gene's life, going off just in time for him to escape only moments before flames engulfed his house. The Red Cross helps people like Gene and communities all across the U.S., maybe even people you know. Generous donors make this work possible. Donor gifts enable the American Red Cross to sustain a strong nationwide infrastructure comprised of local offices, robust training, integrated IT and communication systems, a fleet of response vehicles, warehouses stocked with shelter and relief supplies, and partners to help mobilize to support one family or 100,000 families. The Red Cross also relies on a network of 330,000 volunteers in communities throughout the country who respond night and day, answering the call for help. So when you hear stories about people like Gene Welsh, you may realize that the Red Cross is your Red Cross too, a local charity staffed and supported by your neighbors, making a difference every day in your own community. You can make a difference in your community too. To join the mission to help people affected by disasters, big and small, visit redcross.org forward slash give. All right, we're moving on with the uh, WeatherPods Disaster Relief Telethon. Uh, and we've got an opportunity now to bring in extreme meteorologist dr reed timmer reed welcome to uh welcome to the telethon this morning thanks for having me never stop chasing <laughs> absolutely so uh besides the fact i love your hat by the way but um you know we're, we're talking i want to just start off right off the bat here so this is all for the american red cross disaster relief um i know certainly with the number of storms you've been involved in both tornadoes tropical uh, blizzards, winter storms, floods, uh, you've kind of covered the gambit. I, I am really curious to know what, what are some of the top disasters that you've seen that you still remember and kind of still hit with you a little bit? Well, pro probably the first one that I, that I ever, ever saw that kind of got when, when I first started storm chasing in 1999 was the May 3rd, 1999 tornado, the F5 that went from down west of Chickasha up through Moore and South Oklahoma City. And we were freshmen at the University of Oklahoma at that time. And five of us were packed in a soft top geo tracker. Oh, nice. Cool vehicle from back <laughs> in the day. And I had one of those. Yeah, they're a collector's <laughs> item probably now. Yeah. 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 And my, it was my friend Matt Sanis's geo tracker. And we were all packed in there. And then we ended up seeing the first couple tornadoes from that that supercell and then we kind of meandered through a forest and ended up in the path of it somehow and and someone in the vehicle had the bright idea to abandon the geo tracker and run for an overpass when it was coming at us and there was a family freaking out underneath the overpass but thankfully the tornado wobbled a little bit right when it was approaching us missed us just to the north but then we hopped in the car and and then we saw the damage that that tornado caused up and more. And we saw horses just wandering down I-44, people starting to emerge from their homes. And that was kind of the first time that I'd ever really seen that kind of war zone like damage that a big tornado can can leave behind. And 
Reed, I'd love to ask you a question because you have done, seen so many storms, have done so much research as well. I remember when I was working in Tupelo, Mississippi, and you would come down to Hyperion Technology Group and you'd be working with the engineers and trying to, you know, create your cool things, you know, that you'd send into the storm. But you have a lot of data and, you know, we still don't know why some supercells produce tornadoes and some don't. What is some of the most powerful, you know, data and research that you found from your years of storm chasing and just your experience overall? Well, definitely the the, the rocket launch into the Linwood, Kansas EF4 tornado back in 2019. And, and even back when we were working with Hyperion Technology Group, we were trying to design miniaturized sensors that could live stream data and their GPS position. But back then, the technology wasn't quite ready for us to recover those sensors. And so we launched a lot into tornadoes and we never saw them again. They would just get carried away for many miles and we would lose those sensors many times. And the ones that we would find were the ones that didn't get inside of the tornado that got deflected straight to the ground. And so finally, in 2019, we got a sensor into a tornado and meeting up with Mark Simpson, who's chasing spin on Twitter. He uh, hand built all of those miniaturized sensors and it finally worked on that day in late May in 2019. And it did two revolutions around the tornado and measured a pressure perturbation of negative 113.5 millibars too, as it went up kind of in the lower levels of the tornado. And then also sampled the, the mesocyclone as well up there. And so I think that for discriminating between super or non-tornadic and tornadic supercells, probably the data collected in the environment around the tornado is, is more important. But for us over the years, we've kind of been focused on collecting data inside of the tornado, which I think is kind of more difficult. It's associated with a safety risk too in there. And so I think as when we do self-funded research that isn't really attached to the government or a research institution that it makes it possible for us to get closer to the tornadoes and to try to deploy sensors inside without having to deal really with some of the safety issues that I guess are at play. But we still, of course, when we launch our rockets, we're always sufficiently far away from power lines and it's always a legal launch and you have to follow all the local regulations and everything yeah. too, as well with the rockets. Reed, what, what's the, what, what's your guys like latest technology you guys are using with sensors? Like, is it, is it drones or, cause I know there's all this regulation now that we have around those, right? Yeah, our, I mean, our most recent project has been launching those miniaturized sensors with model rockets that are custom built from the roof of the Dominator. That's so awesome. So then we get in the path of it from the inflow notch. And we've, we've learned over the years that we really need the propulsion of the uh, that the rocket engine provides because around the tornado, almost every tornado I've ever chased has that sheath of sinking motion around it that's associated with the occlusion process at any given given level. So if you try to launch a parachute probe from far out of the tornado and it's riding the inflow toward it, it'll just go straight to the ground before reaching the core of the tornado. But if you have a rocket or even a, a racing drone, like an FPV drone, and you can get through that sheath of mm. sinking air, get into the tornado, and then you just have this dynamic pipe of a cyclonically rotating updraft, probably up above 10 or 11,000 feet. And then it, I think, levels off into the, the tilted mesocyclonic flow. A little bit yeah, more. it's 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 crazy to think about, right? Like I, I just remember from watching your old TV shows, like you have to get it just right. You know, when you launch a drone, you can't just launch it towards the storm and it's gonna, you know, go into the tornado. You have to you have to line it up with the wind vectors and make sure you're you know you're not gonna get a burst of sinking air, like you were saying. And it's it, it's crazy, right? But uh, it's it's always really cool just to see the data you produce and the you know it's like red the you know the hunt for red October meets storm chasing, right? That's awesome. Yeah, and it's fun to to collect data inside of a tornado too. And I love just storm chasing with just my potato phone, you know, and a pair of shorts and a beater vehicle. <laughs> too. But when you're trying to collect data inside too, it kind of adds some more stakes and a, a little yeah. bit more fulfillment, I guess, with the, the whole uh, storm chasing process. I like to do the ground probes too. and But with self-funded research, it is tough because it is kind of a one-way street. There's definitely no saving up for retirement or anything and <laughs> no. funded science. Yeah. Reed, Bill Murray here. Um, always love everything you do and love the show Tornado Chasers. Talk about that show for a second and then just spend a moment and talk to us about Tim Samaras and what he meant to you. 
Sure. Yeah. So Tornado Chasers was our, our kind of independent production that we did after Storm Chasers. So that, that was canceled uh, after the 2011 season. And we partnered with all our old camera guys from Storm Chasers and Ken Cole, who we've worked with since our University of Oklahoma years. He's, he's always been an independent film guy in addition to a meteorologist too. And we did our first show, Tornado Glory, back in the early 2000s with Ken as part of his student project at the University of Oklahoma. And so we partnered with him on Tornado Chasers and did two seasons and definitely was a fun time. Our, our goal was to kind of cover the more realistic side of storm chasing, whereas storm chasers, there, there, were, there was a little bit of a, a scripting that happened in there too. And you had to bounce from team to team, but we tried to keep it a little bit more raw in the 2012 and 2013 seasons. And and I was very close with, with with Tim, and we were on the same show with Storm Chasers before that as well. And Tim is someone that I always looked up to as well and uh, inspired a lot of our science too. And I've uh, discussed the turtle probes a lot with him. And Tim also worked with Hyperion Technology Group too, the engineers down in Tupelo. And uh, he developed his pedo tube anemometer that we had on the Dominator back then, which it doesn't have the moving part. So you can, it's capable of measuring some stronger wind speeds as well. And uh, and I saw Tim a, a couple of days before the El Reno tornado after the Cora, Kansas intercept in the Dominators. And I was also friends, good friends with Carl Young as well and, and his son, Paul. Uh, but Tim was always, you know, someone that uh, was an inspiration to me, someone I looked up to, I would say a mentor figure as well in terms of the science and the storm chasing. and kind of how to work with, you know, the traditional research and the professional meteorologists and also do self-funded uh, research and storm chasing. And uh, his legacy still lives on and, and all the, the work that we do and always striving to do our own science, no matter what the circumstances. And, uh, you know, he's forever missed as well. He was always looking out for our safety and always worried about, you know, whether we're okay when we were storm chasing too. So, but, but yeah, I, I, I loved Tim and uh, definitely for, will be uh, forever missed. He's a, a pioneer of uh, storm chasing science. And there's a lot of people in the professional meteorology community that view storm chasing as a little bit less important as to other aspects of professional meteorology, like television meteorology, for example, or National Weather Service forecasters or research meteorologists. And I just feel like Tim was kind of at the the, the leading edge of of storm chasers doing science and and being professionals and uh, storm chasing being treated as a professional industry more so and also uh, how storm chasers can help out in collecting data because the fact is is there's probably nobody more passionate about about weather than the storm chasing community out there and also there's not not many people that have such a diversified skill set with the technical skills I mean there are storm chasers that computer program they can video edit. They can fly drones. They have all their licenses and everything too. And so I think that it was such a natural fit for storm chasers to participate in field science and in the warning process. And Tim was always kind of at the forefront of that with storm chasing. Thank you. And Reed, those were um, such kind words uh, for Tim and just the community in general. And that day with El Reno, that was a tornado that surprised everyone, you know, it, it, it grew in size so rapidly and also it's forward speed, um, just increased so surprisingly as well. Can you break down the tornado and just that day in general and what it was like? Yeah, it was one of those setups that, that lead to like the, the biggest, strongest tornadoes that I've ever chased in my career. Those ones like the Pilger setup, like Bennington, Kansas, in uh, 2013 is another one of those. The Manchester, South Dakota tornado setup in 2003 was a setup like that. The Pipestone, Manitoba tornado 2007 was similar. And basically later on in the season and, and in the summertime, late spring into summer, you can get those kind of post-frontal environments that where you get the northerly winds that'll shift around to an easterly direction beneath kind of a zonal flow aloft even, or even relatively modest mid-level flow, but a ton of Kate. So you get a lot of cape of those setups, slower storm motions, you get bigger tornadoes, big dew points, low LCLs, and extreme bulk shear too. And you get those easterlies beneath the westerlies in the mid-levels. And the Pilger setup was similar to that. And in fact, those three days were real similar to that 
as well. And even the core of Kansas set up a couple of days before El Reno. And so it, th those types of setups have always led to those really large tornadoes. And the, the low level jets are, are so strong relative to the, the, to the, the modest flow in the mid-levels that they're moving more slowly. And so you get those tornadoes that'll curl off to the left. And those are kind of the tornadoes that I, I grew up chasing too and getting started with those in the Southern Plains. And so you're always looking for that left-hand turn like what the El Reno tornado did. And, uh, and then you had the Bennington, Kansas tornado just before El Reno that I think might've even been a stronger tornado than El Reno. And both of those were preliminarily rated in EF5 and then downgraded to EF3 when the final rating came out, which I found interesting. But they both had loops in their track, kind of similar to the Yuma tornado or even Eli up in Manitoba, which happened a, a day before the Pipestone Manitoba tornado of June 23rd, 2007. And that was kind of a different setup, you know, kind of an interesting setup of storm kind of propagating south into that weaker low level jet. But the next day it was similar to one of those El Reno type setups that really de destabilize. And a lot of times they're kind of in a effective post-frontal environments. It's almost like you're bringing aspects of the high plains further east with deeper moisture and lower cloud bases or taking like a Dixie Alley tornado moving at 60 miles an hour and making it stationary, you know, and lasting for an hour. So it seems like that type of. So I, I know, listen, Reed, I know MJ's got a question, but you're just ripping off these tornadoes and these Amazing. setups. Yeah. And, yeah. and I've, I've talked about in the past, I do not have a memory for that kind of stuff. You've got to be the guy that when you go golfing, you remember <laughs> going golfing a year ago and playing <laughs> Hole number seven uh, <laughs> on your second yeah, shot right. and how uh, crazy of a shit. That's you, isn't it? Uh, yeah, I don't remember the, the events where we where we botched the storm chase, though. I remember the ones where we see the <laughs> So you, rem great. you remember the it's good great. golf shots, too. That's what it yeah. is. Yeah. I love that. Phil, I think the only thing we remember so, is Clovis, right? As well as everyone. <laughs> <laughs> the whole body of work that was Clovis. <laughs> I don't remember those dates, so those individual dates of the Clovis thing. I just remember day after day yeah. of, of action. So I'm, I'm not remembering them as much, as well anymore. I don't think. So, so Reed, I have a question. Mark Johnson, MJ from uh, Stormfront Freaks. Um, you talk, you've talked a lot about self-funded, right? Research, doing research in a, in a self-funded way. Um, is that your choice? Are you happy doing that, or have have you done grant-based research? Have you looked because you know so much and have such great technology that you're using to do this research? Uh, just talk talk about that for a minute. I, I have very limited experience with the grant-based research because I think that once you kind of decide to take that storm chasing path, it can be difficult to kind of get back into the mainstream research or even fields of meteorology, for example, but more sure. recently, at least in like the last eight or nine years, it does seem like storm chasers are finding their way into mainstream media a bit more and kind of more in the field reporter type of a role. But I would love to apply for grants and kind of take a more organized approach because it just seems like all these years just keep flying by and, you know, are trying to uh, use social media to fund research. But you know, I, I think associated with uh, filing for research grants, though, is a lot of paperwork, and I'm definitely not very good with paperwork. It is red tape, right? Yeah. Most of my life, so any kind of paperwork. And time. Uh, the, I mean, yeah. how much time do you have to take out of your chasing in order to put that grant together and, and figure that out, too? That's, I don't know. If you do it, good luck. That's uh, yeah. That's all I say. Hey, uh, before we get to some more questions here, I do want to highlight, we just went over the $1,000 donation mark. Oh wow! Uh, so again, thank you everybody. As we start driving to two thousand dollars, is is where we're going next. Um, but I do want to highlight uh, Barb Mac twenty five dollars, Red Cross Water Expert twenty five dollars, Jessica Gallagher fifty. Uh, then we get into some rare air here. Cyclone Bruce Jones, who we just had Ooh. on, uh, donated a hundred dollars. Uh, we've got Grant Lighty. Uh, $100. He's uh, one of our Patreon members. So uh, thanks, Grant. So again, thank you uh, for all those donations. Uh, where's our weather pattern going here this next week, Reed? Uh, yes. Looks like you you saw some interest there. Yeah, yeah. I just took a photo too, so I could post and let everybody know that that's <laughs> awesome thing that you guys set up here today 12 hours is a long time to broadcast you guys need we're to sharing that. it uh, we're yeah. sharing the load that's that's what it is <laughs> bill and weather brains and 
James and Carolina Weather Group and Gabriel and Chaser Chat. And we even got Brad Panovich, I think, has taken an hour. Uh, so we're help, help a lot of hands helps ease the load. Nice. Well, it's awesome. And yeah, I think just ahead of the, maybe the pattern shift that's coming up on, on Monday, potentially, or maybe even Sunday, some severe weather. But right after this, I'm going to get some new tires on the Dominator 4 at Discount Tire and then probably blast west tomorrow and do that drive from Greenville, South Carolina. I'm at my mom's house, actually, right now where Gizmo is retired here to oh. about to head west toward Monroe, I think, or maybe Shreveport for Monday. But uh, those positively tilted troughs are kind of, you know, can be kind of a, a pain, I think, kind of a signature of El Nino, I think. But I think there could be a, a couple of good, or, you know, not good necessarily, but a couple of big tornadoes maybe Monday night there near the Mississippi River when that convection kind of hits the Mississippi and maybe it'll be funneling the low-level jet a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. And Reed, I would love for you to describe because not a lot of people chase and are the first on the scene for a disaster like you have been, right? And we're raising money for just all the disasters for the American Red Cross. But can you describe a little bit like the smells of like, you know, the of wood, you know, when the trees are completely like torn down and everything from a tornado, the natural gas you smell, like what is it like coming up on a scene where a town's been completely destroyed? And what is like the number one thing that people need when something like that happens? Well, the smell definitely is, is so apparent when you come up on a damage path, all the shredded vegetation, the wood as well. And a lot of times natural gas leaks, you can hear kind of whistling in the distance and you can smell that kind of distinctive smell odor that natural gas gives off too. And sometimes you can even hear screams and everything too, of people that have just been hit by the tornado and people that are injured and everything too. And a lot of times it's pitch black, so you can't see anything. So the first thing you need is a flashlight, certainly, just to get out there to, to be able to see because it knocks out the power and it's just pitch black. A lot of times they happen at night, too, especially in, in Dixie Alley uh, this time of year. Uh, but, you know, you need the standard first aid kit. And, of course, the, the one of the most important things is, is training. I think that all storm chasers should have that training as well. And uh, so, you know, sometimes when you see someone that is injured and, Maybe you don't have the skills to help out. There's really nothing that's more helpless than that if you arrive on a, a damaged path and don't have the training or if you're not with somebody that has the training. A lot of times when I'm out storm chasing, I try to team up with people that that have that first responder training. So if we do come upon a damaged path, they can help out. And a lot of times I just focus on transporting people to the hospital because one of my skills is driving, I guess. So, And since I'm not as skilled as many of the other first responders out there and many other storm chasers that have that training. I just try to figure out my role in helping out in the recovery. And I try not to overstep my boundaries out there and overstep my training either. But but yeah, I think a flashlight is really important when you come across a damage like that. Peace of mind, of course, remain calm. And it's one of the worst parts of storm chasing, definitely when you come across damage like that, because you witness the suffering firsthand your storm chase is over, you know, you're going to see stuff that's not very good to see too. And, and people need help and you just have to barrel in there and help out the, the, the best that you can when you encounter those, those damage paths and, and realize that you might see some things that are bad. But I think that the most important part is just to go through the training and then, uh, or be with somebody that has the training when you encounter those damage paths. And that's a really great point because the American Red Cross does have, you know, uh, training for people like that, for everyone, if you want to take it, which is so un important and so critical. And you've seen a lot of damage read. I know that with uh, pavement scouring and all sorts of things, what is some of the most shocking things that you've seen, whether it's like a plywood through a, a car or, you know, what are some of those things that you're like, wow, that's the true power of a tornado? Well, the most shocking was probably the Philadelphia, Mississippi EF5 tornado during the super outbreak. And that one carved a slice into the ground that was a couple feet deep and like 200 yards wide. And just seeing all that clay displaced and you definitely tell how powerful the tornado was. And then Tuscaloosa, Alabama, seeing the damage there, I was kind of shocked that that wasn't an EF5 as well. And just 
even realizing that a majority of the people are able to survive a damage path like that too, because seeing Tuscaloosa, you think nobody could survive this, but somehow it happens and a majority of the people do survive those tornado damage paths. I, I, I think what happens is maybe they go limp when the tornado hits and even if they are transported downstream, but yeah, wow. I think it was the most shocking damage was Tuscaloosa and the May 3rd, 99 damage, of course, and the EF5 that went through more in 2013 and just kind of all those big EF4, EF5 tornadoes when they go through an urban area, it's just shocking to see and apocalyptic how you see those stripped trees and stripped conifers. And, you know, it's, it's, it's crazy to see. So Reed, what we're getting ready for our uh, Stormfront Freaks for our 200th episode. Uh, we're going to be doing that live January 4th at the Mount Washington Observatory. Yeah. Uh, we're going to be live up there. Hopefully we're going to be able to get up there. And of course you're coming with us uh, to join us on that expedition and, and adventure. Um, but before we go to break, tell me what you're expecting with, with the El Nino uh, situation. What, what, what are you expecting for the winter weather uh, this year, especially maybe along that East coast, Northeast coast? Yeah, I, I think it'll be wet in the Southern U S and if we can get some Arctic air coming in, we'll probably get a lot of ice storms. Like I could see another big mega ice storm in Oklahoma. Right portions of the same <laughs> overrunning events positively tilted troughs shallow arctic air masses coming in i think and but then if though that active subtropical jet i think we'll have a lot of candidates of storms that could go up the east coast i think it depends on how the north atlantic sets up if, it, if we can get a log jam in the north atlantic you know coupled with an active subtropical jet then maybe we could get a good nor'easter up there i hope so yeah, right, right around uh, January 4th. As long as it's not too bad. If it's not too bad, <laughs> they might not be able to snow snowcat us up the mountain. But um, but we're looking forward to that. Reed, thanks so much for giving us your your time today and and Thank helping you. to uh, promote the American Red Cross and disaster relief. Uh, appreciate you joining us. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Never stop chasing. Yeah, Never so we're chasing, we're gonna baby. go to a break. Uh, but we got coming up next hour. We've got Trey Greenwood. Gabe Cox, the Weather Drama Team, and Mike Scatlin all are going to be with us next hour. Uh, so stay tuned and keep up those donations as we drive to 2000. All right, Reed. Thanks so much, man. Appreciate your time as always. Thank you. Yeah, good to see you. Thank you for tuning in to the Stormfront Freaks podcast. You can watch our bi-weekly show live on youtube.com slash stormfrontfreaks and download the audio version on your favorite podcast player. For links to our Patreon team of exclusive benefits, show notes, past shows, new videos, merchandise, and more, visit our website at stormfrontfreaks.com. While you're there, check out our interactive chaser radar from our friends at zoomradar.com. If you'd like to contact us with questions or make comments about the show, shoot us an email to questions at stormfrontfreaks.com or follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or TikTok. Search for Stormfront Freaks. We'd love to hear from you. Join us next time and tell a friend about the Stormfront Freaks podcast.